Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening our eyes to a new view of life. Thanks for joining us today. This is our 141st episode, and it seems like we're just getting started. Our hope is that after listening to this podcast, you'll see a new view of yourself, your business, and your way forward in life. So I hope today as you listen, you get that better view of your place in the world and how you can live to your potential. Then be sure to share this podcast with a friend. Just might be what they need in their life today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about the power of thinking again. Menasha, Wisconsin is a small town of 17,000 people, about 30 minutes outside of Green Bay. The small town was incorporated in 1874 when settlers described it as a forest full of black bears. As the decades passed, the town became home to the paper mills and production in the area. Living in Menasha, Aaron and John were parents to three children, Olivia, 11, Ezra, 7, and their youngest, Sela, was only five. Years earlier, Aaron met her husband when they were in high school, and both of them were deeply committed to their faith. When John Stoffel went off to college, he and Aaron tried to maintain their relationship long distance, and they did. And one year later, Aaron followed John to college, and they were married. Aaron was only 19 years old. Years later, with three children, John was a 33-year-old carpenter, providing for his family with hard, honest work. The kids were enrolled in the church school, and life was just as it should be. On May 3rd, on a beautiful spring day, as if to celebrate after the long, bleak winter, John, Aaron, and their three children went for a walk along the Trestle Trail Bridge, a 1,600-foot pedestrian bridge spanning the Fox River. As they approached the midpoint of the bridge, there was a man standing next to another man who was slumped over on a bench. John approached him, trying to assess the situation. He looked like he needed help. The two men on the bridge were Adam Bental and Valencia del Toro. The two men were strangers, and del Toro had a gun in his hand. A week earlier, Valencia del Toro and his girlfriend called off their wedding. On Sunday, the two argued, and del Toro got on his bicycle and pedaled toward the park and bridge where between 75 and 100 people were walking, jogging, bicycling, and hanging out. He carried two handguns, a Taurus Judge 410 revolver and a Canik semi-automatic 9mm pistol. At 7.30 p.m., about two-thirds of the way across the bridge, Del Toro got off his bicycle and, without a word, pulled out his guns. Clad in fatigue pants with a gun holster on his right hip and ammunition on his left hip, he passed by other people before shooting. Authorities don't know, and will probably never know, why he chose to turn his guns toward Bental and the Stoffel family. But without warning, Del Toro pulled out a gun and shot John in the chest. Then he shot Olivia and shot Aaron through the leg. They all went to the ground. Aaron grabbed the hand of her five-year-old daughter, Selah, who was standing in the line of fire, and started to run. More shots fired. Then she got her son, Ezra, who was further ahead, and told him to run and get help. Then Aaron was shot two more times as they ran off the bridge, one of the bullets hitting her left hand, lodging in her wedding ring, and the other through her abdomen. Finally, she reached the end of the bridge, got her two children to safety, and collapsed to the ground. She told her two kids to get help. Looking back towards the bridge, she didn't see anyone coming, and she would later learn that the gunman had taken his own life. 
John and Olivia did not survive the terror of that day. Aaron Stoffel and Valencia del Toro were taken to the hospital where del Toro died from a single gunshot wound to the head and medical staff worked to save Aaron's life. The remarkable thing about Aaron's story is that the last words she heard her husband say is what he said to the shooter. He said, may God forgive you. Now, you and I may never lose a child or a spouse to a shooter, but there are lessons we can learn from Aaron's experience. Lessons about how our thinking creates our reality and how we can think again and think our way to a different life. Because Aaron's way of thinking, despite this horrible tragedy, led her to a rich and fulfilling life. Let's continue with Aaron's story. Steve Ulmer lived in the same general area. Years later, 13 years into Steve's marriage, he and his wife, Wendy, had four children. One night in bed, he woke to hear her taking a struggled breath. It didn't sound right, more like a gasp than a breath. He decided to wake her, gently nudging her and whispering her name, when, wake up, when, wake up, babe. Nothing. He shook her, started screaming her name, pleading with her to wake up, but there was no response. He called 911, no pulse. Her breath had stopped. He performed CPR until help arrived. Sheriffs, EMTs, and a whole team of strangers in his bedroom doing everything they could to save her. Nothing was working. Steve could feel her slipping away, and he struggled to hold it together. They took her to the hospital, where they somehow were able to restart her heart, but only for a matter of hours. She never regained consciousness. She was gone. Over the course of the next several months, many people reached out via calls, cards, letters, and messages. But one message stopped him cold. It was a simple message of encouragement from a person he had never met. It was a message from Aaron Stoffel. That name had become known by almost everyone in the area. It was a name that brought a story so heavy, so dark. It was hard to believe that she actually lived it and that she sent him a message. Well, two years after the murder of her husband and daughter, here was Aaron Stoffel reaching out to a stranger with a message of encouragement. And Aaron didn't stop with one message. She would send him encouraging texts. She was a light to him in a very dark place during a very dark time. Well, they met for the first time in person a month later, and they talked for hours. Steve said, knowing her story and the darkness that she endured, you almost expect her to be this sad, fearful person. And it didn't take me long to realize that she was anything but that. There is a spark to her an underlying joy you can't miss. Grief had changed her, but not in the way you would expect. She chose to make meaning of what had happened to her in a different way than most. She used her thinking, her meaning-making, to create a reality in life of joy. It is Buddha who said, in life, we can't always control the first arrow. However, the second arrow is our reaction to the first. The second arrow is optional. Although we experience a lot of pain in our lives, suffering is optional. In other words, pain is unavoidable. But how we react to the events and circumstances that happen in our lives is up to us. And how we react is dependent on how we choose to think and think again. Sidney Banks once said, Thought is not reality, yet it is through thought that our realities are created. And no matter what comes our way in life, our business is not doing well, the mistakes we make, the negative things that happen to us, how we make meaning of those things 
or the thinking we employ is how our perception of reality is created. Ironically, I was preparing this podcast while on the road traveling. I walked out of my hotel to walk down the street to get something to eat. It was the middle of the day and there were lots of people around and I walked past several men who were asking for money. Clearly by their clothes and situation, they seemed homeless or close to it. Being a little nervous of the situation, I walked past them. One man walked after me for a while saying something I couldn't understand. And after going to the store, I was headed back to the hotel. As I crossed the street and stepped up onto the curb, there was the same man lunging towards me. Before I could react, he wound up and hit me with his fist in my left eye. Then he ran away. Now, I haven't been hit in the face since I was a kid, and I forgot how much it hurts to get hit in the face. For a minute, it knocked me silly, and I wondered if I should run after him, but he was long gone. Needless to say, I'm sporting a fine, swollen black eye and a pretty good headache. And learning a lesson from Aaron Stoffel, I said to myself, Maybe I understand this man's frustration, poor, homeless, frustrated, maybe addicted, whatever it is. He sees me walking by him, not seeing him or helping him. I saw a little bit through his eyes. Although I could only see with one eye, the other was swollen. I wish I could go back and relive the situation over. I would have more compassion, maybe, for him, or I would have run the other way, for sure. But I had a chance to make meaning of the experience and said to myself, I now know I can take a punch and remain standing. I can also have a little compassion on this guy. This podcast has been a good lesson for me. My thoughts make me happy or sad. What I choose to think can change my feelings. And here's the thing many of us forget that most of our children don't understand. Our feelings do not come from external events, but they come from our own thinking about those events. Therefore, we can only ever feel what we are thinking. Let's hypothetically say that you really hate your job and it causes you an enormous amount of stress, anxiety, and frustration. It pains you even to set foot in the building where you work. And just thinking about your job makes you anxious. When you're thinking about your job, you're just sitting there on the sofa with your family, maybe watching TV together. But you're fuming at the thought of your job. Everyone else is having a good time, except you. In this moment, everyone else in your family is having a different experience of life than you are. But your thinking has created feelings, and the feelings are keeping you from being more than you can be. And you and I both know that two different people can be doing the exact same job, but have a completely different experience. And it very well could be that at the root of our suffering or happiness is, in fact, our thinking. And as one author said, anxiety is thought without control. Peace is control by choosing the right thought. Now, there are reasons that this topic is more important today than ever before. Today, you consume about five times as much information per day as you would have just a decade or two earlier. As of 1950, it took about 50 years for knowledge in medicine, for example, to double. By 1980, Medical knowledge was doubling every seven years, by 2010, every four years. And the accelerating pace of information coming our way means that we have to think and rethink more than ever before. No wonder anxiety is present in our lives today. The number of decisions we make, perceptions we adopt, and 
things we consider are more than has ever been done by human beings on this earth before. And then things we once thought were reality are not. Pluto has long been thought of as the ninth planet of our solar system. Now it's not even classified as a planet. And this is the kind of thing that happens to us all the time. After new revelations, we have to constantly rethink widely held assumptions. And if that were not enough, people around us have all interpreted information differently, and we are left with information and revelation overload. We're called upon to think and rethink dozens of times a day. And if you're like me, soon we realize how much we don't know, and this can be a very scary thought. So, if this is true, then let's consider how we can use our thinking and the skill of thinking again to help us improve our quality of life, level of anxiety, and make better, more effective choices. Now, the one thing that we need to be aware of is this. When it comes to thinking, we are already working against ourselves. We all have a window through which we view the world, just as you have a window in your room in your house through which you see a very limited view of the world outside. Similarly, your view of life is limited by several biases, these windows that you look through. The first is confirmation bias, seeing what you expect to see. We all have this bias. We expect to fail. We'll likely do so because our actions will be directed by our thinking. The other is desirability bias, seeing only what we want to see. Let's say that my view is that I expect my team member to let us down. So I only notice their deficiencies because that's where I'm focused. These and other biases impact our ability to think. You know, Albert Einstein said that we can't solve problems by using the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. So realizing our thinking is manipulated by our biases and we're subject to these distortions is really important to get in the habit of thinking again. Einstein also said, thinking is hard work, and that's why so few of us do it. So, how do we improve our thinking? Well, good thinkers constantly seek out stimuli to get their minds working, since what goes in always affects what comes out. So, spend time with intelligent people. Engage in reading, reflecting, and listening to podcasts. Additionally, Keep everything that piques your interest in front of you, whether it be an original thought of your own or one that was inspired by someone else. Put it in writing. Keep it in the front of your mind to help you think in a fresh and creative way. As the scripture says, iron sharpens iron. And if you want to be a better thinker, listen to and be with better thinkers. And here's what I've learned. The more curious we are, the more we delve into new things, the more we challenge our thinking, the more doors we open. And for whatever reason, my experience is that these things have a serendipitous effect in life. I read the other day that a leadership team of one of the largest religious organizations in the world has regular meetings, and in those meetings, once in a while, they invite in experts in various areas of life. And these experts speak to their expertise on a range of topics. And the purpose is to open the leaders' minds to what is happening in the world, to spark new thoughts, to seek new inspiration about things, and to challenge and inform their thinking. This is a brilliant strategy. 
And by the way, the average age of this leadership team is over 80. What are you and I doing in our life to open up new ways of thinking? Because remember, thinking informs our life and decision-making. So the better your thinking, the better your life. Next, to improve your thinking, remember, you can choose in any situation to make meaning in ways that fuel your future that make you happier. As Shakespeare said, there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So no matter what comes your way, you can choose to think of it in a way that benefits you. One of the most informative studies ever conducted about health and mental wellness is called the Nurses' Health Study. The study tracks 70,000 women studying their health and other factors every two years. The researchers used nurses because nurses would be reliable in participating over a large number of years. They looked at the participants' levels of thinking, optimism, race, high blood pressure, diet, and physical activity, things that might affect mortality risk. And here's what they learned. Participants who used their thoughts to find more optimistic and meaningful ways of making sense in the world and their place in it had nearly 30% lower risk of dying from any disease analyzed in the study. These optimistic women had a 16% lower risk of cancer, 38% lower risk of dying from heart disease, 39% from stroke, 38% lower from respiratory disease, and 52% lower risk of dying from infection. The research stated, previous studies have shown that this way of thinking, this optimism, can be altered with relatively uncomplicated and low-cost interventions. Even something as simple as having people write down and think about the best possible outcomes for various situations in their life can change the way they think. So, just do this for a minute. Think about the thing challenging your life the most right now. It could be a child, a business, your team, a health challenge, or many other factors. And once you've thought of that challenge, think about how to rethink it and turn the perspective of it to the optimistic, the more positive way of making meaning. For example, if it's a business challenge, be grateful it may cause you to elevate your own skills and those of your team. And this may pay off in the long term because now you have greater skills. Now, this is not Pollyanna thinking. This is good thinking that can change the way you approach life. And we can do this by asking a simple question. What is another productive way to think about what I'm experiencing? And by thinking that way, do I feel happier and most motivated? This is really important because if what you think doesn't make you feel happier or more motivated, it's not likely you will adopt that way of thinking permanently. Once you open your eyes to see this new view caused by your better thinking, the joy and positivity you feel will help you keep thinking that way. For example, my wife is in the middle of three very difficult surgeries, one a hip replacement and two on her feet. Each of the surgeries on her feet require a six-month recovery time with eight weeks entirely off her feet. Now, she could lament about the year without meaningful exercise, which she really loves meaningful exercise. She could focus on the drudgery of it all, but instead her thinking is, the sooner I do this, the faster I can return to walking and exercising. Because this is what brings her joy. 
and the surgeries will make the doing of these things less painful. This view, this way of opening her eyes, makes her more motivated and allows her to deal with these challenges more easily. And the thing is, this way of thinking, of being mindful about your thinking, is a habit. And once you start to pay attention to your thinking and start to adopt this new way of doing so, it changes your life. And this is incredibly important in raising children and grandchildren. The way you talk about your thinking and share your thinking will enable them to follow your lead and start to see things in their life in the same way. Next, to improve our thinking and thinking again, do things that spark and inspire your thinking. Vince Lombardi said, the joy is in creating, not in the maintaining. This is a powerful lesson. As a child, Bob Mankoff liked to draw. He went to the LaGuardia High School of Music and Art. You know this school if you ever saw that old movie called Fame. In school, it seemed like he was creating all the time. He was learning and thinking and growing. Filled with hopes of life, full of creativity, he decided he wanted to be a cartoonist. So after school, he created 27 cartoons, all rejected. He thought, how could anyone create more than 27? So failing in this, so he thought, he decided to become a psychologist. Then he went on to graduate school. And after he finished his graduate work, he looked at his life and realized that he had lost that creativity that had captured him earlier in his life. He used his mind and energy so much better when he was putting his creativity to work. As he thought, he realized that the only way to describe himself was funny. So he committed himself to this true end goal. And that was to be the best cartoonist in the world. When he made this decision, something powerful entered into his thinking. Now, the New Yorker is to cartooning what Yankees are to baseball. And he knew if he could make that team, he would be the best. So he started to draw in earnest. He got a few contract pieces placed in a few magazines, but his rejection rate was astronomical. Finally, he realized that his thinking was stale and he needed to inspire himself. So he went to the New York Public Library looked up cartoons in The New Yorker back to 1925, and he really studied them. He thought something might be wrong with his cartoons. He thought maybe these other cartoonists were better draftsmen than he was. Not true. Some of the cartoons used worse drawing techniques. He thought maybe his captions were too long or short, but this wasn't the case. He thought that maybe others were funnier. Not so. Some were funnier and others a little less but there was something that these published cartoons had that his did not. They made the reader think. Each cartoon had the right amount of wrong. The second was this. Each cartoonist had their own unique style. So Bob adjusted his approach. He used his understanding of psychology to make people think, and he adopted his own style and used a drawing method called stippling, where you draw using tiny dots, and the frequency of dots determines the shading of the cartoon. Well, the next year, with his creativity ignited, Bob sold a remarkable 13 cartoons to the New Yorker, then 25 the following year, then 27 the next. Finally, he became a contract cartoonist, and now he is the editor at the New Yorker. The point is this. It is in the creation and perseverance of things that you find your greatness. 
And Bob did something very few of us ever do. He let his thinking, his creativity, take him to the next level. It was following his creative intuition that made all the difference. So what about you in your life? What has captured your curiosity? Whatever it is, perhaps you ought to pursue and pursue that thing in earnest. And if for no other reason, then your thinking, your reality, your way of seeing things will be vastly different after that pursuit. Curiosity means being willing to explore the unknown, to experience new stimuli and accept uncertainty. The very best thinkers are inherently curious about a wide range of topics and generally have broad interests. They tend to have a healthy inquisitiveness about the world and about people, which they temper with common sense and prudence. Instead of taking everything at face value, a curious person will wonder why something is the way it is. Life can be full of curious adventures. Books are adventures. The pursuit of a goal is an adventure. New languages, different people, books, places, hobbies, nature, skills, and delving into the curious has great power to elevate your thinking. And again, it's thinking that comes as a result of being curious that changes our reality. Next, thinking is a science. Believe it or not, many colleges require students to take classes on how to think. The first thing they teach is to get outside of your personal bubble. And this isn't just about the friends you have. It's also about what you read and what you feed your mind. It's natural for us to seek the same thing over and over again. Read the same things. Focus on what's familiar. Our minds make it so. Our brains like habits. This means it takes purposeful effort to step outside of your normal way of thinking. It's natural for people to group themselves together, for example, with people who think or act like them. This happens especially online, where it's so easy to find a specific cultural niche. And social media algorithms can narrow our perspectives further serving up only news that fits our individual beliefs. This is a problem. Because if everyone in our social circles thinks like we do, we become more rigid in our thinking and less likely to change our beliefs on the basis of new information. In fact, the more people listen to people who share their views, research shows the more polarized those views become. But thinking beyond our typical circle and then reflecting on these things allows us to grow in mindfulness. To be mindful, then, means to be aware of one's thoughts and surroundings in a way that's free from judgment. It is exactly this type of thinking that leads your children and you and me to be able to take a step back from our feelings and act purposefully. And from the same study, researchers found that good thinkers were not subject to manipulation like their fellow students. They could stand on their own despite conflicting views around them. So you can see that when you and I demonstrate for our kids how to think and think again, they pick up on skills that will help them throughout their life. So this week, start thinking again, because sometimes you get so in the thick of things that those things get distorted, less than clear, less than easy but how you think can and does remove those distortions. As we end today, let me pass on a simple message for your thinking this week. I've been thinking about many of you 
and your situations in life today. And I'd like to tell you this. You are extraordinary. Every day in your family, on your team, ordinary people like you do extraordinary things. You weren't made or put here by your creator to just get by. You have within you the DNA to make your life fabulous and remarkable. You have the hope of heaven as your power. You have more value to those around you and to your maker than you can imagine. And I believe you have been put here in the circumstances in which you've been placed for a reason, for a purpose. And I am confident and have great hope that through good thinking, you can become who you are meant to become. Hopeful thinking is the belief that circumstances will get better. It's not a wish for things to get better. It is the actual thought, the knowledge that things will improve, no matter how big or small. Remember, the realities in your life are, like Aristotle, created by the way you think. And you can choose to think in new and better ways. And those new ways of thinking can be strengthened by learning and doing new things, by getting curious, by being honest with yourself, and by finding the positive and optimistic ways to think and think again. Watch. If you do this, you will have a happier, more fulfilling life, and your children will do the same. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And be sure to join us next week as we seek to open our eyes to who and what we can become.